If you would stand, our scripture reading today comes from Revelation, all the way to the right, chapter 3. We're going to be reading Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes So that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Any kids that want a children's bulletin, go ahead and raise your hand and somebody will bring that bulletin out to you and you can follow along that way. So last week we finished our series in Joshua. Next week, uh, I'm kind of excited about the series that we're starting. We're gonna have, do something a little bit different. We're gonna have a five-week series based on the five core values of Orlando Grace Church. So you're gonna get to hear the deep values that this church has and kind of where the elders sense God moving this church going forward. So as has kind of become, I guess, my my custom here, in between our series, I like to take a week and just do something random. I say random, something that I want to do, something that I maybe I sense the Lord drawing me to. So this is why this week we're taking the week off. We're hitting pause between Joshua and our our core value series, and we're looking at this, this letter to, well, written by John, to one of the seven churches, the church in Laodicea. So the church in Laodicea uh, is not going well. Things are not going well. And if you know a little bit about Revelation, you know that Jesus has seven messages to seven different churches. And these seven churches are in some way supposed to represent all the churches that would follow. So what is being said to the church in Laodicea is very much intended for us in Orlando in the 21st century to be heard as directly applied to us in various ways. So Jesus is coming in here uh, and saying some pretty hard things to the church in Laodicea. He's speaking kind of like a doctor might come in and give you a very hard diagnosis. Now some of you know what it's like to have a very hard diagnosis. I, I remember very well where I was the day that a doctor told us that Angela had cancer at age 29. You just don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, for years, Angela had, uh, she kind of joked, she had all these weird symptoms. And she said, one day, there's going to come a doctor who's going to be able to tell me this is the problem. (laughs) This is how all these different symptoms come together. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So even though it wasn't easy to hear a doctor say you have cancer, there was a measure of hope in the diagnosis because we knew that with her type of cancer came a process by which you can be cured. So 
There's hope in the heavy diagnosis. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is wanting to do here, what he's wanting to communicate. There is a heavy diagnosis coming for the church in Laodicea. And I think by connection, the church in Orlando here, but he's bringing this diagnosis with the cure. So I want to look at this passage like a doctor's visit. This is an idea I got from Tim Keller. So I didn't create this idea, but I want to look at this passage and look first at the symptom in Laodicea, then the diagnosis, and then finally the cure. So that's how we're going to walk through this passage. Let's first look at the symptom. The symptom is pretty clear. It's vomit-inducing lukewarmness. That's the symptom in Laodicea. Look at verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So context is really important as we read the Bible because in this, in this passage, we have two verses that are famously taken out of context in the West and largely in the past 100 to 150 years. And these passages have become uh, so familiar and so misunderstood at the same time, which is kind of a weird thing to have something so familiar and so misunderstood. Uh, this, this week, um, I realized that there was a song that I had been singing for, I guess, decades at this point. I'm starting to feel really old saying that. It's a Stevie Nicks song. And, and the, the line is, just like a white-winged dove. But I realized this week, I've been singing just like a one-winged dove. So now that I realize that the song makes so much more sense. <laughs> White-winged dove makes so much more sense than a one-winged dove. But for decades, this song is so familiar, and I'd been misunderstanding, missinging mis- this verse, the song. And that, I think, is a good illustration of what has happened to some of these, two of these verses in particular in our passage in the American West over the past 100 to 150 years. So here is some helpful context to understand lukewarmness. Uh, Laodicea is a very wealthy city. They've got a lot of things that a lot of other cities did not have, but they lacked something that was very important, water. All right, they didn't have a natural source of water, but luckily the city of Hierapolis to the north and the city of Colossae to the east, they had water. Hierapolis had hot springs up there and, and Colossae had really refreshing cold water. So what Laodicea did with their resources is build aqueducts to bring the water in from those two places. And so what happens to cold water after it has traveled seven miles to the west through the Turkish desert? It becomes lukewarm. And what happens to hot water as it travels 11 miles? It becomes lukewarm. So when people would drink this water from either destination, it was lukewarm. But the water from the hot springs of Hierapolis, that was especially distasteful because of the calcium carbonate, or so I read, in in hot springs. And what it does as it becomes lukewarm, if you're not used to drinking that water, it can create a nauseating effect. So people visiting this city, they would drink the water and immediately spit it out. And so what Jesus is doing here that I think gets mixed up, I know gets mixed up in our context, he's not creating a continuum, you know, like on on one side you have hot water, which is a, a passionate believer in Jesus Christ. And then over here you have cold water, which is an unbeliever. And the worst of all is lukewarm. Because if, if that were what Jesus, if that was what Jesus is doing, 
then Jesus, it would seem, would prefer that we not believe at all over being this thing called a lukewarm Christian. And I don't think that's what he's saying in this context. And I definitely don't think that's what, what the whole of the Bible is communicating to us. Jesus isn't setting up a continuum. He's telling the people in Laodicea that you have become like your water. You have become lukewarm. You've lost the elements that make you refreshing. And if you don't change your ways, then I am going to respond to you the way that people respond to your lukewarm water, which is what? I will spit you out. That's what Jesus is doing in this context. You know, I was thinking this week about times I've gone to a drink expecting something and I received something lukewarm. You know, like I, I, ex- I go back to a coffee cup and I, and I expect it to still be hot and it's, it's really lukewarm, which the staff team here, I understand behind my back, they make fun of me for all my coffee mugs that I leave around. So I, apparently I do this a lot, but I go back and, I, and I'll drink this coffee that I expect to be hot. It's lukewarm and, and I feel like I want to spit it out. Or I think even worse, if you go to like a glass of milk <laughs> that you expect to be cold and refreshing, if it's lukewarm, you really want to spit it out. And I think that is somewhat akin to what, to what Jesus is talking about when he says the refreshing quality that your water lacks, you lack too. And so the symptom is vomit-inducing nausea. So what is it? What was that refreshing element that Jesus is saying the Christians in Laodicea that they lacked? I think we can see clearly in verse 19 that it's zeal. Zeal for Jesus. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous. So a lukewarm Christian is someone who has lost their zeal for Jesus. That's what's going on in this passage. And lots of commentaries and pastors have pointed out that this word, this Greek word for zeal, zealos, it's, it's used to translate both in English as jealous and zealous, which can be kind of, confusing if you think about it because you have times where Paul is saying don't be zealous don't do it and then other times where Jesus is saying be zealous you know so how how are we to understand this one word that gets translated in such different ways well I think it's really really simple it's fundamentally the same word we need to think of it as being jealous of versus being jealous for that's the difference going on here so when you're jealous you are intensely setting your love on someone or something. And so when that someone or something is yourself, when you're supremely concerned about yourself and your reputation and your comfort and your security, then anyone who comes into your life that threatens it or has more of those things, you become jealous of them, right? And that's, that's bad. That's what we trans, that's the, the don't be's in the Bible. Don't be zealous. But then... There are other times where you intensely put your love and affection on another person. You're supremely concerned with their well-being, their growth, their health. And when you do that, you're not jealous of them, you're jealous for them. And so what is happening in this passage is that Jesus is saying there is something else in your life that has claimed the supreme jealousy that I want you to have for me. And that is the refreshing quality that you've lost, and that is what lukewarmness is. 
So, there's no continuum. (laughs) Cold water is good. Hot water is good. But it's this lukewarm lack of zeal Christianity that Jesus is going after. That's the symptom. Now, let's go to the diagnosis. And here again, we need to understand some historical context. And, and the good news is that we know a whole lot about Laodicea. We have a lot of records, both biblical and extra-biblical, but we know that there are three things that are very important to understand to be able to appreciate what Jesus is saying. And the first is that Laodicea was a very important textile center. So they produced garments and wool. They became well known for their black wool that they would produce with black garments, black robes, uh, black uh, coats. So that was one thing. Secondly, they became very well known as a financial center in the Roman Empire. They, They happened to be on the main trade route going to Ephesus. So people would come through Laodicea, they would trade their goods, they'd be able to sell their, their garments, and they made a lot of money. And so they acquired a lot of gold. There, there's, this, there's one account of a huge earthquake in the Roman Empire around 60 AD. And because they were a part of the Roman Empire, they were eligible to receive money to help rebuild their city after this really horrific earthquake. And the Laodiceans very famously sent back their money. They said, we're rich and we don't need help from anyone. So they sent it back, which unheard of today, unheard of back then. (laughs) Thirdly, Laodicea was a medical center. They had become world famous at that time for producing doctors who could manufacture a, a salve that would heal certain eye ailments. All right, with those three things historically in mind, let's listen to the way that Jesus diagnoses the Laodiceans in verses 17 and 18. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So do you see what he's doing? I mean, he's laying on the irony. He's saying, you you say that you're rich, but I'm saying you're spiritually poor. You say you have all these fine garments. I'm saying that you are naked. Then you boast in these eye doctors, not realizing that you are blind to the thing that matters most. So he's using the things that they boast in to diagnose the heart of their problem. And here is where we see the underlying disease, the the underlying disease that's contributing to their lack of zeal, which is why Jesus calls them lukewarm. And the underlying disease in Laodicea is self-reliance. Self, we have it. We're good. We don't need any help from the outside. And in some way, we don't need help from God. The disease in Laodicea is a desperate need to see their desperate need. That's what's going on. That's what is taking away from their zeal. So how did they catch this disease? How is it that a church would get to the point where where they don't rely on Jesus Christ, where God would come in and say, your self-reliance is so bad that I might spit you out like your water. Well, I think Jesus is drawing a very clear connection here between lukewarmness and affluence and health. And and I I don't 
I wouldn't take it so far as to say every, anybody who's affluent or wealthy or healthy uh, is always going to be lukewarm. But I think when a culture has affluence and relative health, they are going to be, they're going to be more at risk for this disease of self-reliance and lukewarmness. Now, I don't think the church in Laodicea, I don't think they intellectually doubted that Jesus was their savior, that Jesus came to save them from their sin. I just don't think that it gripped their hearts anymore. They weren't relying on Jesus on a daily basis for all the things that they really did need because these other things made them feel like they're fine. And if there's ever been a church that needs to hear this warning outside of Laodicea, it's gotta be the American 21st century. I mean, we live in the most affluent society that has ever existed. We have more temptation to say we're good because we have these things, I think, than even Laodicea at the time. Tim Keller, when he was preaching on this passage, he was talking about a man in his congregation who was having a really tough time as he was personally reading through the book of Judges. Because he came to this judge named Jephthah, and he saw that this believer in God he sacrificed his daughter to appeal to that God. And this guy in his church was having a really tough time understanding how in the world can a man who follows God do something that horrific? And the answer is because that's what the surrounding culture was doing. The surrounding culture would sacrifice children even to appeal to God. And so he was importing something from the surrounding culture. It was horrible. It doesn't excuse it in any way, but that's what was going on. And churches throughout the history of the world have been in that same situation where if we're not careful, we're importing the values of our surrounding culture. I mean, this was what was happening in America 160 years ago when Christians were justifying and even supporting the slave trade. This is what was happening 60 years ago when Christians were justifying and even supporting segregation. And today, we have to be cognizant of the culture we live in and the ways that we import from that culture. And one of the main things we're tempted to bring in, if we're not careful, is this culture of self-reliance. We've got this thing. Our hope is ultimately in progress and education and money and medical progress. And it's become, I think, kind of a well-known thing to people in certain circles that have access to non-American Christians. So I, I think most of our Bridges staff here would, would support what I'm about to say. Bridges is a ministry who's geared towards international students. When Christians from poorer countries come into the United States, and they're coming from places where Christianity is booming in many cases, they come in, they're often too nice to say this right away, but they're shocked at what they see in the church. And they're shocked at what they would call our lukewarmness. And they would say, if you really, if they're honest and if you can get them to say it, that they're appalled mainly at three areas of our Christian life. They're appalled first at our lack of prayer. They're appalled at what we spend on ourselves when you consider what we could be giving away. And then thirdly, they're appalled at our fear of social persecution, of what might happen in the office place and in the school if people realize that we really follow Jesus Christ when you realize that some of these people are coming from cultures where you go to jail for professing faith in Jesus Christ. So they come in and they're nice, 
but they look at us and they see Laodicea. They see a lukewarm church on the whole. So if we are, as a culture, Laodicea, and, and I, think, I think we can all agree, at least outside of the walls of the church, we're Laodicea. So how then can we diagnose how much of that culture is coming into our church? How, much, how can we diagnose the lukewarmness of our environment here? And as I, as I read commentaries and sermons on this passage, it seemed like everybody came back to the same diagnosis. If you want to diagnose your own lukewarmness, the extent to which this disease of self-reliance has come into your heart and your church, the best and chief measure is prayer. Prayer communicates the degree to which we really believe that we're reliant on God and, and nothing else in our life. John Piper says, it doesn't matter what we think in our head. The test of whether we are in bondage to self-reliance is how earnest and frequent and extended our prayers for change are. So if we want a diagnosis, we need to ask ourselves, are we praying? Not just when we get in trouble, but are we really praying for sorrow over our sin? Are we really praying for hearts for the lost? Are we really praying for conversions? Are we really praying that the Spirit would draw us closer, that it would give us more power with which to love people? Are we praying that we would increasingly look more like Jesus in, these li- in our lives? This is the main diagnosis that I think, and, and I, I'm, again, I'm not on an island here, that most people would say to see the degree to which we are consumed with this disease of self-reliance. And I could imagine somebody at this point thinking, all right, (laughs) great, here comes Jesus again, wanting to take my time and my money and my comforts. And if we, we think like that, I think we're really missing what Jesus is wanting to do. He's not wanting to come in and take something good from us. He's wanting to wake us up to something better. And we can see this in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He comes and he says the hard things. He gives the hard diagnosis to the people he loves because he wants more of us. He wants more from us. He wants more for us. There's this kind of famous figure, uh, St. Teresa of Avila. She was a a counter-reformation figure. So really interesting figure. But she was praying about some suffering in her life and in the way she tells the story, she heard God very clearly say, Teresa, this is what I do to my friends. And to which she apparently responded, well then God, it shouldn't surprise you that you have so few of them. (laughs) But there is a role in the Christian life because God loves us, he reproves us and he disciplines us and he draws us towards him. Not not because he doesn't want us to have certain good things, but because he, he wants to loosen our grips on things that aren't, not, not only aren't nourishing our soul, but in many ways are contributing to our demise. And so when I think about our church, I'm, I'm not thinking that fundamentally we lack a head knowledge that we need Jesus, especially after we die. I think our, our main hurdle 
is the way that we see our need for Jesus Christ on a daily basis in this life. He wants us to have something that no amount of money is ever gonna be able to give us. The will of Jesus for this church is that our spiritual poverty, that it would be replaced by spiritual wealth, that our nakedness and shame that would be replaced by a white robe, and that our blindness would be cured so that we could wake up from this matrix-like dream that many of us live in and see the things the way that he sees them. So if that's the case, if that's the diagnosis, a heavy one, what's the cure? Well, Jesus, the great physician, he gives us the cure. In verse 18, in my third point, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Buy from me gold garments and salve. That's what Jesus is saying the answer. And it's really important to understand what what he's doing and the way that he's using their context to appreciate the cure that he's offering them. So first gold. What is gold? They had a lot of it. But what were they ultimately doing with this gold? Gold is a way of communicating status, a worldly status. And it's really clear, I think, from the text that that's what Jesus is connecting this gold to, their, their worldly status. So spiritual gold then, this would, this would be a status with God, a status God that we can't buy, that we can't earn, because it was given to us. So spiritual gold is understanding that if there was ever a status to be coveted, it was that of Jesus Christ, the son with all the rights and privileges of the heir to the universe, who traded that status by coming down into this broken world and enduring the shame and dishonor and pain of this world so that he could trade statuses with us, so that he could go to the cross and take the status that we deserve as an enemy of God, and give us the status that he earned, a son of God. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, come to me and get gold refined by fire. There is no greater refining than Jesus on the cross, receiving the full wrath of God in our place. Secondly, we need new garments and I can imagine the Laodiceans saying, but we have the best garments around. We have these beautiful black coats and robes and tunics. And Jesus is saying, that's the problem. You don't need black clothes. You need a white robe. And if you know this imagery of a white robe all throughout the Bible, but especially in Revelation, it communicates an acceptable life before God. So the robe is white, representing sinless, and it is a robe because it's put on us, because it's given to us from the outside. Every one of us, we're looking to clothe ourselves in some way. We are revealed, we are naked, and we need to cover that up in some way. And we see this going all the way back to the beginning of history. I mean, when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, what's the first thing they tried to do? Clothe themselves. Not because they were naked simply, but because they were shamed. They wanted to cover themselves up. I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard of the, the TV show Naked and Afraid? It's okay to admit, I watch it. I've watched it, there's back there. 
I, I think probably three times of you have seen it than are admitting it right now. But there's a show called Naked and Afraid and I became uh, exposed to it because if you fly Southwest, as I increasingly do, for some reason, this is a part of their free, like in-flight viewing. So I, I've become very, very uh, aware of the show Naked and Afraid. And the premise of the show is you have two people uh, who are dropped into some sort of inhospitable environment naked and they are supposed to survive for 20 days. That That's the show. And so at the beginning of every show, there's this really awkward moment where they take two people, a man and a woman, and they disrobe and they meet each other for the first time. (laughs) And it's really painful to me because of the way that they're being exposed in front of a complete stranger, in front of all these cameramen, I presume. And then even though there's a lot of blurriness going on, they're being exposed to the whole world in some way. And when I think of what Jesus is saying here, I think he's saying, that's you, (laughs) You're totally exposed. You're completely exposed and this is why you need to be clothed. And you're gonna run to things that aren't me to be clothed. You're gonna run to your degrees, your degrees, not your decrees. You're gonna run to your degrees and your money and your relationships, your job, your status, whatever it is. But all those things are our black robes. And Jesus is saying what we need is a white robe the only robe that's really going to cover all of our sin, and that is the robe of his righteousness on our lives when we believe in him, when he trades status with us. So we need his gold, we need his robe, and then finally, we need his salve. So the salve that the Laodiceans have, it can help physical sight in some ways, apparently, but it's not going to cure the blindness of the heart. There's a kind of blindness that no medicine can fix and that's the kind of salve that Jesus offers us. The disease of self-reliance, it is somewhat akin to alcoholism. And those of you who've struggled with alcoholism or you've been around people who struggle with alcoholism, you understand that alcoholism is a horrible disease because people run to alcohol looking to cover something over, looking for comfort, looking for an escape, not knowing that the thing that they're running to to feel better is actually killing them. And often the person who has the disease of alcoholism is the last in his or her circle of friends and family to see the disease. Often many other people have eyes to see it before they do until by some measure of hitting rock bottom, their eyes are opened. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that we need a salve that can open the eyes of our heart and that can help us see the things, the true state of things in our heart and in our world. But there's a big problem here. I don't know if you noticed it. In verse 17, Jesus says that we have no money. So how is it that we're to purchase this gold and these garments and the salve if we have no money? Yeah, I mean, there are people in sub-Saharan Africa who are diagnosed with brain cancer and there's a cure to that. But the problem is that the cure is in the United States and you don't have the money to go get it. This, I think, is the kind of helplessness that we're supposed to read into this text. There is a cure, but we're supposed to buy it and we have no money. But unlike the sick in sub-Saharan Africa, Jesus is saying that the doctor is coming to you and he is bringing the cure to you. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So this is the second really familiar part of this passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And 
over the past hundred years in Western culture, this has been uh, used very evangelistically. I, I, I shudder to think how many gospel presentations I've given where I've said, behold, Jesus stands at the door and knock. Will you open the door and receive him? And I'm willing to bet a lot of you were, were brought into the faith by some evangelistic message that, that used these words. And so I don't think it's like the ultimate harm to use the, this verse in that way. But I think we do need to see that that's not what it's saying. This is not an evangelistic verse because Jesus is talking to believers. This is not an invitation to the faith. Something else is coming here. The doctor has come to the sick believers. And in doing so, do you remember the main problem with the water at Laodicea? The main problem was that it was lukewarm because their distance to the source was too great. That was the problem, distance to the source. So what Jesus is saying is you're you're connected, but your distance is growing. And so the source has come back. The source has come back and saying, I stand at the door and knock. And in ancient times, it's easy for us, I don't know, maybe it's coming back around because hardly anybody has anybody into their house anymore the way that they did. But in ancient times, it was communicating something very significant to invite somebody into your home, to eat with somebody. It's communicating a level of intimacy and your fellowship and your friendship that was really significant. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do with him, to bring us into our home, to have that level of intimacy and fellowship with him. He wants to have an intimate meal with us without any of the distractions of self-reliance in our life. And so I, I know you know, many of you know what it's like to sit around a dinner table and you're all physically there, but maybe, maybe all the kids are on devices. Maybe the adults are on devices. <laughs> maybe you're a kid at a table realizing nobody's talking to each other here. <laughs> you know, every parent aspires to a little bit more at the dinner table. We don't want our family simply to be physically present. We want them to be emotionally and psychologically present at the dinner table. And that's what Jesus is calling us into. He doesn't want us to be simply physically present. He wants us to be emotionally and spiritually and psychologically connected to the source. So he's coming to us. We're poor. We have no way to buy the cure. And Jesus, I think, is very intentionally using the language of Isaiah 55, which says, come, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Because the source comes to us. We can buy the cure. It's offered for free to us because the price has been paid on the cross. Jesus is jealous for you. He is so jealous for you that he was stripped naked that we might be clothed. He was made poor that we might be rich. And he was blindfolded and beaten that our eyes might finally be opened. He is that jealous for us. And he comes to the Laodiceans in this text and to us and says, will you be jealous for me? Will you open the door and have the kind of relationship that I wanted you to have, that I desire for you to have? Maybe a relationship that you had a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, or longer, that seems like another life. 
Jesus is coming to you today and saying, I want that to be true again. I stand at the door and knock. Will you let me in? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you you come to us. You open our eyes. You pursue us into salvation and through our salvation until the kingdom comes, you will be pursuing us. You are the source and you come to us. And God, I pray that all of us today, that we would see ways that we could be enjoying you more, ways that you are saying, I stand at the door and knock. And I pray that all of us would respond by bringing you in, fellowshipping with Jesus and experiencing the joy that you have designed humanity to experience. God, as we transition into communion, I pray that you would use this time to help us consider the ways that we are distancing ourselves from the source. We pray that you would be here in a real even if slightly mysterious way. And I pray that you would set apart these ordinary elements of of bread and juice to be used for your extraordinary plan to draw us closer in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.